Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. Jesus says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or, more, two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him to be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. We now come to the subject of church discipline. And obviously this is a subject that is very, very uncomfortable for many people in our culture and also even in our church. We understand that there has to be a measure of order in society. We understand that there has to be order in the home. But we rarely demand the same order in the church. And so our chapter begins with lessons on greatness. But now Jesus is going to give us lessons and instructions about injury, about forgiveness, about restoration. Jesus speaks of our fellowship with one another. And you don't have to be a Christian for a very long time to all of a sudden realize Christians are far from perfect. There was a time in the 90s where people loved sporting bumper stickers that says, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. I understand the sentiment, but sometimes people use imperfection as an excuse to continue to sin. If each person always and everywhere loved God, obeyed Christ, there would be no need for these instructions because Christians fall into sin and offense. Jesus reminds us how we as a church family can retain happiness and holiness as a congregation. So right from the start, you learn that these words aren't for everyone. These words aren't instructions for Democrats versus Republicans. These words aren't instructions for governments against, for, and, and against governments. These words are, apply to Christians and are for Christians. And of course, if you're not a Christian, then it's going to be very, very difficult to encourage you to obey God's word and obey Christ's Messiah. We Christians accept the sacrifice of Jesus for our sin. We embrace Christ as the rule of our lives. And so we as Christians should be the very first people who say, I want to love Jesus and I want to obey him in every area of my life. You'll remember earlier in the chapter, Jesus pronounced a curse on the world because of offenses in verse 7. Jesus warned his disciples that the greatest in the kingdom were to exercise personal humility and that were to radically deal with the problem of sin in our lives in verses 8 and 9. Jesus has warned repeatedly that we do not, I repeat, do not have the right 
to sin against each other. That includes pastors to the congregation. That includes the congregation to the pastor. That includes husbands and wives and parents and children. The older and the younger, we have no right to sin against each other. And now Jesus will give us the answer of what to do if we find ourselves in a place where we have, in fact, sinned against each other. Because God knows that sin separates. God is in the, in the business of exposing sin, forgiving sin, restoring relationships. The Lord Jesus is not in the breakup business. Sadly, some of us are. There was a song that was very popular in the 80s. Most of you probably never heard it, but it went something like, In a perfect world, it would never end like this. There'd be something we could do. In a perfect world, lovers wake up with a kiss and their wishes all come true. In a perfect world, People minister to one another and pray for one another and encourage one another and love each other. But, oh, by the way, how many of you are living in a perfect world? Oh, there's no hands. And because we live in an imperfect world with imperfect people, these instructions are given to us. They become tools in a toolbox where we can help one another. Jesus is in the business of restoring relationships and healing friendships and exercising forgiveness. And Matthew 18 has been called a formula for church discipline. It is that, but it's so much more. These instructions given by Jesus are given to us so that we can deal with the problems and deal with the failures and deal with our sin and be reconciled in our relationships with one another. Matthew 18 is not an excuse to end relationship, but an opportunity to deal with one another in righteousness and peace according to God's word. We all know that we have a great deal of freedom in Christ, but we don't have the freedom to sin against each other. And so discipline begins when sin takes place in relationship. And so Jesus is in effect requiring Christians to believe God's word. And then for God's people to obey God's word. And so Matthew 18 is a model of restoration for broken friendships and relationship in the context of Christian fellowship. But some people insist on disagreement and injury and sin. And sometimes they'll go to absurd lengths to ruin relationships. So Matthew 18 is not a convenient clause to weed out troublemakers in the church. These are instructions for peace and harmony and order in the church. And I'm going to suggest to you that they're not optional. They're a part of the king's constitution. They serve as a handbook of what it means to have healthy churches and healthy relationships and holy and healthy relationships within the church. And so step one begins with examine yourself in restoration. And you might be thinking, 
Well, where are you going with this? Well, I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 5. Verse, well, I want to begin in verse 23 and just read uh, to the end of the chapter. It says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 23, gentleness, self-control. It says, against such there is no law, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. At the beginning in verse 22, it says, you know what it says, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. The fruit of the Spirit in the believer's heart reflects the character of Christ. It begins with love. It continues with joy and peace and long-suffering. It ends in verse 23 with gentleness and self-control. And you might be thinking, well, why would you begin there? Because the text doesn't begin there. You're exactly right. The text doesn't begin there, but the principle of self-examination and restoration is found throughout the New Testament. Whenever we're talking about this kind of subject, we should always begin with an examination of our own heart and our own life and dealing with the problem of sin. It always begins with self-examination. Christian character is formed by God's Holy Spirit in the believer's heart. And the fruit of the Spirit begins with love, ends with gentleness and self-control. So walking in the Spirit is not some sort of emotional experience detached from everyday life. Walking in the Spirit is the daily experience of the believer who loves Jesus, who loves his word, who reads his word, who prays and obeys his word. Because one of the things you're going to note right from the start is can we overlook the faults and failures of others? How many of you are mothers? Many of you. If you couldn't look, overlook the faults and failures of your children, what would life be like? Can you imagine if you had to confront your child every time they sin, going, sinner, you've sinned against me. We're going to walk through the Matthew 18 process. Let me be clear. Children don't have the right to, to sin against their parents. And parents don't have the right to sin against their children. But let me just be very, very clear. It's okay. It is okay. There are times and circumstances in our lives where we are free in Christ to overlook a fault, to overlook something that's happened to us. Do you have the freedom in Christ to go, you know what, I'm going to just let that go? I think that the answer is yes. Are there times when things happen that are so severe and so profound that you can't let it go? And the answer is yes as well. And you might be wondering, where do I draw the line? How do I draw a line where I'm willing to just go, look, maybe you had a bad day or a hard day or this kind of a day or that kind of a day. Maybe you spoke out of anger or frustration or guilt or whatever it was. I'm going to overlook it. When do you not overlook it? I'm going to suggest to you that when what has been said and what has been done fundamentally changes your perception of that person. That's when you actually have to deal with it. And that is where we begin in our text. In step two, 
Step one begins with an examination of yourself. Step two is person to person and restoration. Reread verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Remember, the whole point of this passage is to ensure health and holiness in relationship in the body because it matters to Jesus. The more people you involve, the more complicated the discipline. It's probably a good idea for me to define what I mean by discipline. Discipline is that thing which you engage in in order to effect a different response. It's not punishment. The point of discipline is to change behavior. And so Jesus doesn't say even go tell God or go tell Jesus or go tell the pastor or go tell their father or go tell their mother. It actually doesn't begin there. Jesus says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go alone. You go. You go motivated by love and deep humility. Jesus says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, the problem is we often do exactly the opposite of what Jesus has asked us to do. Instead of going to the person, we do exactly the opposite. We respond with hatred. We respond with resentment. We respond with bitterness. We seek revenge. We engage in gossip. We write them off. Oh, so this is the way that it's going to be. Guess who isn't a part of my life anymore? Uh, that would be you. The reason why Jesus is giving this instruction, I can't even overemphasize this enough. Even though you may not believe it, maybe you're even suspicious that it's even true. Jesus is making it abundantly clear that your relationship with each other matters to him. The injury begins with a perceived sin if your brother sins against you. Not against the government, not against this or that. Again, the, the implication seems to be that this is a personal Injury, a personal slight, a, some sort of personal sin. And now people will read this right away and in the back of their mind or even right in the front of their mind, they're going to say, I hate conflict. I just don't want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with all of the drama and I don't want to deal with the conflict. And I get that. I understand that. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear. People in proximity of relationship to one another will generate conflict. In the very real world in which we live, is it possible to be close to someone and not experience some kind of conflict? The issue isn't whether or not there's going to be conflict. The real issue is how will we handle the conflict? And will we handle the conflict with the tools that have been given to us? And preferences and differences don't always constitute sin. You, you don't confront people because you got raspberry sorbet and they got deep, dark chocolate. Hey, you know what? You should have got the ice cream I got. Give it a break. 
Preferences don't constitute sin. Sometimes misunderstandings degenerate into a massive conflict of personal attacks and sinful words and sinful deeds. And when people injure each other in the world, they get an attorney or they sue somebody or they go on a reality TV show or they run for office. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, it says, quote, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, that's speaking about worship, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. In other words, Jesus is saying, interrupt worship if that's what it takes, but go and be reconciled to your brother. If you have something against someone, go to them. In the perfect world that Jesus is describing, that if there is injury or sin, that each person is trying to find a way to get to the other person so that there can be healing and restoration in the relationship. That's the idea. To Jesus, it doesn't matter whether you're offended or the offender. To Jesus, it doesn't matter. Well, this is the person who injured me. They should come to me. Jesus doesn't give you that option. Jesus goes, somebody hurt you, you go to them. You've hurt somebody else, you go to them. You take responsibility. Well, why should I have to be the person who makes this right? The answer is because that's what Jesus has asked you to do. Why do I have to be the person who makes this right? Because the answer is that broken relationships are harmful. They're harmful to the church. They're harmful to your family. And we can't leave something as important and powerful as friendship and fellowship and reconciliation to chance. In Luke 17, 3, Jesus says, I want to warn you. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. There's a reason why he begins the sentence with a warning in Luke 17, 3. I want to warn you. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. Rebuke means cautiously confront with a view that you might be wrong. And why is it a warning? He's warning you because he knows just how difficult it's going to be to do this. Because the easiest thing is to forget about it or pretend like it never happened. Now again, are there circumstances where you have every right to do exactly that? I think that the answer is yes. But are there circumstances when the only way that there is going to be real healing and real restoration is confrontation, confession, and reconciliation? I think that the answer is yes. I think there's also a wrong way and a right way to confront. Ray Craybill in his book, Repairing the Breach, has a list of eight ways to turn a simple disagreement into a full-fledged feud. He gives us a list of what not to do in responding to conflict. Number one, he says, be sure to develop and maintain a healthy fear of conflict. 
letting your own feelings build up so that you are in an explosive frame of mind. By the way, remember, do I have to repeat? This is what you're not supposed to do. Number two, if you must state your concerns, be as vague and general as possible. Then the other person can't do anything practical to change the situation. Number three, assume you know all the facts and that you are totally right. Then use a clinching, out-of-context Bible verse. Speak prophetically for truth and justice. Make sure you do most of the talking. Number four, with a touch of defiance, announce your willingness to talk to anyone who wants to discuss the problem with you, but never take steps to initiate such a conversation. Number five, latch tenaciously onto whatever evidence you can find that finds the other person is just merely jealous of you. Number six, judge the motivation of the other party on any previous experience that showed failure or unkindness. Keep track of every and all angry words. Number seven, if the discussion should, alas, become serious, view the issue as a win-lose struggle, avoid possible solutions, and go for total victory, an unconditional surrender. Don't get too many options on the table. And number eight, pass the buck. If you're about to be cornered into a solution, indicate that you're without power to settle, that you need your partner, you need your spouse, you need your bank, you need whatever. These are the things you're not supposed to do. What are you supposed to do in a nutshell? You're trying to find ways to stay together rather than stay apart. Jesus isn't asking a person to rely on subjective feelings, but objective facts. The confrontation is more like a court of law than a psychological encounter group. The word fault in verse 15 is an interesting word. It means convict. In verse 15, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him, look at that word, fault. The fault seems to be some kind of injury that constitutes sin, that's brought about evidentially. Christians can become hurt or angry or upset for all kinds of reasons. Just like children in the back seat of a car when you're taking a trip. Have you ever been driving across country and one child says to the other, he's looking at me. He's touching me. Make him stop. My father used to say, hey, look, Unless you kids stop this, I'm going to have to reevaluate my position on child abuse. <laughs> yeah, we can't look to the unbeliever to solve the problem. The bottom line, we don't have the right to sin against each other. But we also don't have the right to make false accusations. Clearly, we have to be careful of unloving acts and unloving attitudes. Love, the Bible says, believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. We're to view our brother and sister's actions 
not in the worst possible light, but in the best possible light. And look what it says. What happens if he hears you? If your brother hears you, you've gained your brother. That's the idea. Imagine you go to a person and you say, you know what? This is what happened and this is how it, it affected me. And I got to tell you something. I care about you. And I care about our friendship. And I care about our relationship. You matter to me. And can you imagine if the person's response is, what I did was wicked and wrong and sinful and injurious and I am so sorry. And it won't happen again. That's what Jesus means when it says, you have gained your brother. That's the operative word. If he hears you, the person recognizes what's happened. Can it be a misunderstanding? Yes. Is it possible it's real sin? Yes. Here's the idea. The person loves you and you love them. You're looking for reasons to stay together, not apart. The sin is recognized, confessed, and repented. And when the offense is between two people and they've recognized the offense and they reconcile to one another, the issue need go no further. You've won your brother. It means reconciliation is accomplished. In the Bible, the word for reconciliation is interesting. It's dialazo, which means to exchange enmity for friendship. Isn't that interesting? It means to exchange enmity for friendship. Have you ever been in school or in college or in a relationship and you say to a person, you know, when I first met you, I hated your guts. And then I changed. I got to know you. And I discovered you can't be all bad. You love me. No, that's the selfish way of looking at it, isn't it? But people change. Their hearts change. Their circumstances change. You exchange enmity for friendship. Apologies are important and necessary, but they can never serve as a substitute for biblical repentance. And there's a difference between being sorry and godly sorrow over sin when a person says, this isn't just simply about you cornering me and eliciting a confession from me. It's the reality of knowing exactly what sin does. And friendship and fellowship, how injurious it is and how we want to avoid it. And so I forgive you is more than just making a promise. It's also a promise to never raise the matter again. It's a promise that's made absent feelings. Forgiveness is a choice that we make. Forgiveness always involves one person. It only takes one person to forgive, but it takes two people to be reconciled. And so look at step three, worthwhile witnesses and restoration. Look what it says in verse 16. But if he will not hear, that's the operative word, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. How many times do you approach the person? The Bible doesn't say. The, the Bible doesn't say, look, I talked with them once. They wouldn't hear. I'm done with them. I'm going to take two or three witnesses. The Bible doesn't necessarily say that. 
The Bible doesn't say go to them once or even go to them twice or even go to them three times. The Bible doesn't really tell us. The operative phrase is what gives us a clue of how to go forward if he will not hear. The implication is to try to make him hear. Sometimes the best thing you can do is to let anger cool, to give it a rest, give it time. What moves the process forward? I'm going to suggest to you that the thing that moves the process forward is repeated refusal to be reconciled. Repeated refusal to be reconciled. At each stage, Jesus says, and if he refuses to listen. This doesn't mean, again, that you've approached the person once and they they don't listen and move on to the next step. You may want to vary your approach. You may want to infuse an enormous amount of meekness and humility and love. You might want to infuse a separate conversation that goes something like this. I so care about you. You matter to me. Our friendship matters to me. I care so much about you. And this thing has created a problem that in order for us to get past it, it's going to require the recognition of the difficulty. Look for signs that the person might be weakening in their stubborn resolve to sin. Make sure that unwillingness to hear is not a failure to understand. The real issue is the unwillingness of people in Christ to recognize the harm and Jesus' deep desire to see wholeness and wellness in the situation. And if a person asks for further evidence, Bible verses, understanding of the facts, give it to him or her. Make sure that the problem isn't a failure to rightly divide the word of of truth. And then look what Jesus says, bring witnesses. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or, or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established in what sense? Does this mean that you bring people who were witnesses to the offense? Not necessarily. If someone witnessed the sin, it's not private, it's public. If I see you hit your wife, if I see you gossip, if I hear you speak evil, if I watch you injure someone, this isn't a private matter, this is a public matter. Here, I'm going to suggest to you the witnesses are lovers, of both parties who want to see them reunited. These aren't strangers, but counselors looking for biblical solutions to life's problems. These are people who are supposed to participate in the recognition and restoration and reconciliation processes. The witnesses confirm or attest to every word. In other words, are The perception's accurate. Are the accusations credible and believable? They're witnesses to the words of the accusation and the words of the refusal on the part of the brother or sister 
who's moving away from confession, moving away from repentance, moving away from reconciliation. These are people who are supposed to bring you closer and closer and closer to the resolution. These are not necessarily witnesses to the events of step two, but these are mediators of the discussions that take place in step three. And who are these people supposed to be? Jesus doesn't say. The implication is that any Christian can be called on to help. It, it, it seems to me that the qualification has to be, do you love this person? Yes, I do. Do you love that person? Yes, I do. Do you love them and you care about them and do you care enough about them and their friendship and their fellowship to bring them closer together? Yes, I do. If the person is called to counsel or offer help or, or serve as a witness to the discussions, it seems reasonable that there should be a certain level of maturity and knowledge and sensitivity and commitment to biblical principles about sin, about confession, about forgiveness, about reconciliation. And if elders or deacons or the pastor is chosen, they're not operating as church officials, but private Christian citizens in love with the idea that hurting each other is wrong and reconciling the offended parties is right. And so to assure privacy, the name of the offending party shouldn't be revealed until the person has agreed to act as the witness. Like jury duty, it's the duty of every citizen, every Christian citizen to serve. It's the duty of every Christian to act as a loving channel of reconciliation. And this is what Paul meant when he said, I have given to you the ministry of reconciliation. We should constantly be looking for God-honoring biblical solutions to misunderstanding or the problem of sin. We're looking, we're looking, we're looking for a way to impart grace and mercy. And so here's step four. Tell it to the church. And restoration, look at the beginning of verse 17. It says, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. All the steps up until this point have been informal. All of the steps up until this point is, please, find a way to care about each other. Please, find a way to forgive each other. Please, find a way to be reconciled to one another. We can't. Do it. There are times when the court of last resort is the court of first resort. There are times when you don't go to him privately and then you don't take witnesses and then you don't necessarily just simply tell it to the church. You do not pass go. You do, do not collect $200. You go directly to step four. When do you do that? Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, where there was a man in the Corinthian church who was sexually involved with his own father's mother and Paul is writing to them and says, time out time out. I'm paraphrasing. This is disgusting. You need to kick them out right now. This is so harmful. This is so harmful to the church that you need to kick them out right now. And 
there are times when that's exactly what you have to do. Jesus doesn't give us specific instructions on what that means. He says, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. The word church here is ecclesia. It means the assembly. It means the congregation. It means the community. It means all of us who have gathered together to be with one another. And I think we have to piece together principles from the rest of the scripture to determine how that is done. I don't think telling it to the church means interrupting the worship service. I don't think it means, all right, Gino, I'm going to interrupt this message and I'm going to give you a warning. So-and-so is doing something to some so-and-so. That's probably not the way to deal with it. We've gone through the process of Matthew 18. And remember, there's a refusal on the part of the offending party to acknowledge their sin. There's a refusal to heed the warnings and pleadings of other believers. There seems to be a consistent refusal, and now it's time to tell it to the church. So how then do we do that? Again, we know that everything has to be done decently and in order. We also know that the events of Acts chapter 15, when the church leaders and elders and believers were meeting together in order to resolve questions, they brought together the principles, they talked about the problems, and then they drew a resolution. Often in the Old Testament, when God wanted to address the people of Israel, he assembled the elders and the leaders together. When elders tell the church, we have to be sure that this is a situation that is family business and that we confine it to the church. So even here, the implication is that the elders and the leaders plead with the person. To be reconciled first in their relationship with the person who's been offended. And then also to be reconciled in whatever broken relationships have taken place along the way. Is the Bible trying to shame people into compliance? Judge for yourself. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 14 Paul says, And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person. Don't keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. That might come as a shock and a surprise to you. It might come as a shock and a surprise to you that according to the Bible, there's certain behavior that is shameful. And that the right response to certain kinds of wickedness is a profound sense of guilt and shame and that you're not supposed to do it. And so step five at the end of the passage is removal from the covenant community. If he refuses, look what it says, if he refuses to hear the church or the assembly, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. The New Testament describes ways in which people are put out of the church. Quote, remove them from your midst. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 5, 2. Number two, clean out the leaven, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. 1 Corinthians 5.13, get him out of your midst. 1 Corinthians 5.5, deliver this person to Satan. 1 Timothy 1.20, I've handed them over to Satan. Matthew 18, treat them like a heathen and a tax collector. Who's a heathen? A person who's outside the church. Who's a tax collector? This was a Jew who was put out of fellowship in the synagogue for collaboration with the enemies of Israel. 
And it's important to note, we're not making a judgment about their actual salvation or spiritual condition before God. The Bible doesn't say, oh, by the way, the moment you say that they're an unbeliever, they're an unbeliever. That's not what it's saying. The Bible says we're to treat them like they're unbelievers. We're not to judge their heart. We're to judge their words and their deeds. This is a functional judgment. We treat the person like we would any other unsaved person. Now, I want you to think about this. On what basis do we do that? We do it on the basis for the person who says, I don't care what you say. Well, but Jesus just told you to do this. I don't, you know what? I don't care what you say. I don't care what the witnesses say. I don't care what the church says. I don't care what Jesus says. I don't care what the Bible says. If you're dealing with a person who says, I don't care about you, and I don't care about your family, and I don't care about the Bible, and I don't care about Jesus, and I don't care about the church, does it seem crazy to you to treat them like an unbeliever? And so you do. What do you do with unbelievers? You give them the gospel. Hey, you know, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Do you realize that the Savior is willing to forgive your sin and, and that you can experience his love and grace and mercy? Just stop talking to me like I'm an unbeliever. But wait a minute, you're acting like an unbeliever. You've already said, I don't care about this person and I don't care what the Bible says and I don't care what Jesus says and I don't care what the church says. You, do, do you begin to understand the point? Hopefully you're, you're beginning to understand, no, I do care about you. And I care about our friendship and our fellowship. And I care about our congregation. What does it mean to treat them like an unbeliever? Well, if they want to marry somebody, we refuse to participate. If they want to partake in the Lord's Supper, we forbid it. When we talk to them, you're not unkind or weird or cruel. We're not the Amish. You don't shun them and turn your back on them and pretend like they don't exist. But quietly and persistently, you love them. Remember what love means. A willingness to do what's right towards them. What is the most loving thing that you can do to an unbeliever? Point them to Jesus. Remind them of the gospel. So in the course of the discipline, the person is in effect who says all of these things is outside the body. Is there any hope for the offender? Well, the answer is yes. As a Christian, you pledged your love and your loyalty to Jesus. Again, remember what you've already said. We have no right to sin against God or each other. Christians in particular have no right to sin against each other. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 8. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. Even when Paul kicked the man out in 1 Corinthians, he said he's had enough. He's had enough. Take him back. Restore him to fellowship. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Verse 8 in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. In the process of restoration, Paul says, when you're putting people back in the place of forgiveness and friendship and fellowship. Make sure you affirm your love for them. 
So in a nutshell, how do we handle conflict? Number one, don't ignore conflict. Confront it. Number two, don't exaggerate conflict. Solve it with the least amount of publicity or public scrutiny. But even then, even as I say it, don't exaggerate the conflict. Do it with the least amount of publicity or public scrutiny. Do we withhold information from the public at large when crimes are committed? No, we do not. Number three, don't abandon conflict. Pursue it to a godly and biblical resolution. In other words, in the course of this, there's going to always be the temptation. This is too much hassle. This is too much work. This isn't worth it. And Jesus' constant admonition is, no, no, you're worth it. Your friendship and your fellowship are worth it. Don't give up. And number four, don't always go it alone. Take two or three witnesses. Require also that you, you yourself are open to reproof and correction. The moment that you include others, it should be for the purpose of going, maybe I've got this wrong. Maybe I've overreacted. Maybe I've done something wrong. And number five, don't recycle conflict. Once it's resolved, let it go. Find ways to be a part of each other's life. We're going to have a whole lot more to say about this in the weeks ahead. But I hope this gives you a tiny, tiny clue as to just how important you are to each other and to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for these instructions. Lord, I'm the first to admit that we don't always follow them perfectly. Lord, we thank you for the instructions. Lord, we pray that we would be open. Lord, we know that these instructions don't work unless the person really knows and loves you, unless they're submitted to you, unless they're willing to acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord, that he, his love is our love, his sacrifice is for us and that Jesus has done all that he could possibly do so that we could experience grace and mercy and so that we could extend grace and mercy to each other so that we could live together in harmony and in holiness and so again Lord I pray that you would stir up our hearts that Lord we would refuse to find an excuse to stay apart. But rather, Lord, we would find the one good reason to stay together because of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.